This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. Hello and welcome to For the Wild Podcast. I'm Ayana Young. Today we are speaking with Tyson Yankapoda. You got to be able to spend time out in the land and let the land heal you as well. You know, you need all these things, not just the medication. So for me, that story, story is the landscape. Story is the cultural landscapes we all live on, the psychological landscapes. And there must be law, capital L-O-R-E, that is just your firm foundation that's unchanging, that cannot be up for grabs, that cannot be something that's subject to change and violation, you know. We need sacred law again. We need story that's inviolable. This is what we need. Tyson Yankapora is an Aboriginal scholar, founder of the Indigenous Knowledge Systems Lab at Deakin University in Melbourne, and author of Sand Talk. His work focuses on applying Indigenous methods of inquiry to resolve complex issues and explore global crises. Tyson, I am so happy to have you back. Mm. I still remember our first conversation. Not that I expect you to, but I still remember it along with our team. And it was just one of the most refreshing and humorous uh, conversations I think I had. Not that you were trying to be funny, but I definitely got a few chuckles from it. So thanks for coming back on For the Wild. And I look forward to this conversation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no worries. It's good to be here. Yeah, it's, I was saying, thinking before, how many podcasts there are with wild in it. And you said it's a word that beckons. Mm. And I like that that word, mm. beckon. It's, it's a little less coercive than, than you know, longing and <laughs> despair. Mm. And mm-hmm. <laughs> you get sort of striving. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, in a sense, beckon to me is the other, where longing is from the source that's it yeah so it just come hither you know and Mm -hmm. then you you gotta decide uh yeah will i will i pursue this (laughs) let's explore Mm -hmm. this let's explore this the wild beckons me for sure take that plunge yeah like if you see someone hot like uh, across the room at a bar or something (laughs) and they kind of give you that look you know and you think ah Do I have another drink now or do I get up and walk across? (laughs) Why can't they walk across for a change? Yeah, kind Mm -hmm. of like that. Yeah, yeah, a little bit like that. Um, Yeah, I think the wild does that for me in in its way, in its most um, potent way, more potent than a human for sure. Mm. And sometimes it swipes right and sometimes it swipes left. (laughs) The dating, dating metaphor, yeah. Yeah. Well, for me, the the wild happens to always be worth it for whatever that's worth. It never disappoints, always challenges and asks me to show up in my most authentic self. And um, yeah, yeah. yeah, it's... You're not swiping in any direction. You, 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 you're throwing your phone into the sea and just running naked down a beach. Yeah, there's no phone. Screaming, ah! That's the best part is that the phone has no power yeah. with the wild. The wild yeah, shatters yeah. the phone. Yeah. Um, shatters it. Shoot, shooting arrows <laughs> yeah. at, at heli- helicopters like a Sentinelese Islander or yeah. something. Like yeah, that. yeah. The the land in its in all of its autonomy says yeah. no phone here. Hey, Matt, did you ever come across that Sentinelese Islanders? Mm, no. See them online. Mm. Oh, it's like the, the, no one's ever been able to land there. I think a, a, a Christian tried to go there to convert them a while back, and um, mm. and he just got shot full of like forty thousand arrows. 
in, in the first 10 minutes. Wow. Uh, every now and then a helicopter goes and tries to take photos, but then the helicopter ends up full of mm. arrows too. Which I think it's nice that there's someone still shooting arrows at helicopters somewhere in the world. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I hope more and more of us take up arrows and start uh, holding off the helicopters wherever we are. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're going to do it. You're doing it with your river there, aren't you? Protect yeah, the salmon runs. Yeah, for bloody mining companies. Yeah. Hey, we'll just drill under this glacier. That'll be all right. Uh, it's insane. Just going to drill right under there. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 insanity, and it's uh, yeah. you know we live in this intense time, lots of pain, just trying yeah. to take in the reality of the world right now. And something I really loved about our last conversation, we talked about how identity and branding have really fueled a society just obsessed with perception rather than the truth of conditions and. Mm. Uh, it just seems that in the time that's passed, this has only become more true as we witness the constant cultural narrative spin around pandemic, war, global crisis, so on and so forth. And um, maybe you could help us out with talking about how you're steering yourself against the forces that urge us to continue on as, quote, normal Oh, just badly, you know. I did the decades of the, the decolonial work, and I'm decolonizing myself, and I'm like helping other people decolonize, like like it's some inner practice, like some inner work, <laughs> which you know does not stop the machinations of empires. You know, the empire keeps rolling on, and we're all here, you know, doing breath work and stuff to, <laughs> to decolonize. We're all like, you know, we're all reading Foucault and, and, and Saeed and, and sort of, you know, decolonizing in the cafe and, you know, I don't know, or just writing lots of things that are, oh, man, this is true. Yes. Yes. Tyson speaks truth. And it's, yeah. And, it's, and then people have this illusion that it's speaking truth to power and it's not, you know, truth to power is like, Niger Delta follows in like speedboats with AK-47s. You know, that spoke truth to power, and <laughs> I don't think very much else does. Except maybe a screenwriter's strike or something like that. Mm. But they know what they're doing. You know, they hold out forever. You know, power against a strike. Uh, it's hard to hold, hold out against AK-47s, though. You know, not that I'm advocating that. I was all into that, like I was um, very ISIS green for a while, um, uh, like about a decade ago, and I was like, stuff it young, and I, I'm going to get my hands dirty, get in there, and then I met a girl, you know, <laughs> and it all went away, yeah, met a girl, moved to the city, and uh, yeah, slowly went insane, like you do in a city. Mm. Going back to this idea of decolonizing, I think that's oh, just hearing you talk about it, it's almost like mm. Hmm, uh, it almost feels a bit like walking on eggshells mm. to talk about it in the way that you brought it up. Because I think for some of us, we want it so bad, but what is it? Yeah. Uh, what is the material consequence of decolonizing? Mm -hmm. And sometimes I think what we feel like we can do is talk to each other mm -hmm. rather than talking to power. Or maybe we think if we talk loud enough to each other, power will hear yeah. it. But I see, you know, I see the discrepancy in that. Um, mm -hmm. even I, just, I don't know how to do anything but the poetry, you know? Yeah. I mean, every revolution needs poets, mm. but it's not going to be much of a revolution if everyone's a poet. You know, we're all content creators now, just sort of out there endlessly creating content about what's bad and why. You know, um, it's very tricky to find that space between the you know, online presence and sort of doing the work that needs to be done. Mm-hmm. 
Oh, gosh, that's a big can of worms to open. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the content creation, it's it's something that we can do, yet we create this content to be put on a platform mm. owned by the powers. Yeah. And so that's an interesting concept to grapple with. And yeah, I agree. We can be creating all this content, writing poetry, mm. breathing, speaking to ourselves, but who is or who are the people actually holding the line with the mine and et cetera, et cetera. Or maybe it's changing policy or who's doing Mm. there. I mean, I think there's many categories of the dirty Mm. work, so to Mm. speak of actually shifting the material reality. Yeah. And And the the forces we're up against are just, Mm -hmm. you know, um, you can play whack-a-mole with the mines like forever, but (laughs) keeps coming. Yeah. It's 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 really rough. Mm. Yeah, struggling with it a bit of late. Mm. And here's the thing: this is what I was trying to say, and I forgot. But it's back again. It's like we're we're all preaching to the choir, you know. Then we keep going with that, and it's just so much competition, and so there's factions, and and pretty soon we're not just preaching to the choir anymore. We're we're like molesting the choir you know, doing heaps of lateral violence, you know, across all these movements that should be aligned, um, you know, but we're kind of factionalizing this way and that way around all these sort of culture war hills that we all want to die on. Yeah. I don't know. It's really hard because I used to be all about you've got to reach out a hand, you know. If there's a, you know, a kid who's turning into a neo-Nazi, you can't cut him off. You've got to show him love and you've got to hold on to him, you know. And, you know, these people, you got to try and bring them back. But then at the same time, you know, you reach out your hand and they take an arm, these people, you know, everything is jujitsu around. Uh, all of our language, you know, from long research and struggle and lots of really good deep thinking and a, and a big sort of scholarly canon that we've built up, you know, um, where the science is settled on stuff any of the language that we have for that, that can just be taken, you know, by the powerful and turned around back on us. Everything from woke to, you know, anything else that you want to say, they'll turn around and co-opt it. Fake news, anything. They turn around back the other way and then uh, that word's gone now. And we're running out of ways to describe things, you know, our, our language uh, for people who don't want the world to die, our, our language is not evolving fast enough, you know, for how the destroyers of this world and all their useful idiots and henchmen can um, jujitsu it around and wreck it on us. Because that's the second law of thermodynamics there, you know, it's uh, it's easier to break shit than make shit. And why wouldn't you break shit at the end of the world? <sighs> well, that's my thoughts on that. You were going to say something about content creation. Yeah. Yeah, well, I'm thinking about content creation and language, and it's all about story, right? I mean, that's how us humans learn is through story. And your new book, Right Story, Wrong Story, takes the form of a very specific journey. And maybe you could uh, share what inspired the structure for the book and how you see the role of story as integral to knowledge. Ah. Well, when I moved to this city, you know, it was a strange change for me, like being in the city, you know, and I was still myself for, um, I don't know, maybe three years, two, three years. So like when I wrote my first book, I was still, I was still me and I was still connected, you know, to land, culture, language, you know, all these things. And, um, ah, but, yeah, since then, and especially over COVID, like, and those lockdowns, because we had two years of them in Melbourne, and the universities didn't, we didn't go back to work, uh, we stayed working at home, so it's kind of just been this really internal existence, you know, for that whole time, and I kind of lost myself a lot, you know, that when you're part of the land and, and, and these natural systems, then the land is a sentient system that you're part of, it gives you what you need, you know, from moment to moment. 
you know, I always say anything you need, like look around, like any problem you got, like really look around you because it'll be there. The things that you need uh, to fix it will be right there. Uh, if you're hungry, there'll be food there if you care to look. Um, yeah, because country land does this. You know, it, it opens up for you when you're in it. Uh, not if you're standing outside looking at it and taking photos or, you know, uh, constantly in a struggle to save it. You have to stand outside of it to do that because that's where the enemy is, you know. <laughs> so here I am, heart of darkness in the city. And, um, yeah, I just kind of lost my mind. And I, yeah, I, like I, I have like uh, childhood onset bipolar disorder. So I've always had this bipolar and um, and it just got really exacerbated. I started having lots of psychotic breaks and, and big ones. Like I classify the big ones as the ones where there's police involvement, you know. So, yeah, there's been a, a lot of struggle, a lot of strife and trouble. And I'm trying to deal with this um, this grief I have about like decolonization is something you hold on to, you know, and, and, and gives you hope like you're fighting a good fight. And then I just kind of saw this like fabulous zeitgeist that had become <laughs> in the world and uh, very much a middle class activity. And yeah, and something that really wasn't having any impact on the world. It's like we're uh, decorating uh, our living spaces in, in post colonial style, <laughs> you know, and, and that's what decolonization is. We can lend our eye to like redecorating places, but we can't do anything structural, you know. You can be political decolonial, uh, but you have to be fiscally colonial, if you know what I mean. And so the book came out of that, and I kind of held it together for the first half of the book, and then I went completely, I lost my mind. <laughs> so the second half of the book, it like just degenerates into this madness, you know, spiraling down. I had like three suicide attempts while I was writing it. Yeah, it took me two years. You know, the first book I wrote in a manic upswing, and so I wrote it in two weeks, but this one took me two years. Yeah, and so it was kind of like pressing on all the sore bits. You know, when you do that, you kind of press the sore bit, and it hurts, but it kind of feels like you're doing something to help it. You know, when you rub that bump or that wound or cut or whatever. Yeah, so I was kind of doing that. You know, I'm connecting with the reader as a sibling, you know, who might be going through the same kind of things because I look out in the world and I see the same kind of pathologies and the same grief and the same, you know, frustrations and destructive behaviors all around me that, you know, that I'm going through. I see them in a lot of other people. I see them in systems. You know, I see them in movements as collective disorders. I see them in economic systems and entire cultures, this sickness, you know. And so I saw the same things there. And I kind of mapped it all on uh, Dante's circles of hell, you know, in Inferno. So each chapter, each chapter is going through a different circle of hell. And it starts off as it's a lot of yarns. People call them interviews, I guess, uh, you know, with different thinkers who are really interesting. You know, and it's following that structure, but then it starts to deviate from that <laughs> quite strongly. Yeah. So it, it really is a, a journey into madness and, and just hell, but with lots of laughs along the way, you know, lots of laughs. And eventually we come out at the end and have a yarn with um, Hannibal Lecter on the last page. I won't go any more into that than that because spoiler alerts, you know. <laughs> it's it's kind of weird. There's a lot of movie references in there because uh, that's kind of how I talk, how I interact with the world. Mm -hmm. Oh, gosh. What you said about being, I don't know if this is the word you use, but being theoretical uh, or being theoretically decolonial, but fiscally colonial or something like that. Uh, that that's definitely yeah. pushing on the wound. Yeah, that's what the like politicians are always saying. Like um, left-wing politicians have to say that they're like socially liberal and, and fiscally conservative. Mm -hmm. They always have mm -hmm. to state that they're fiscally conservative. It's pretty much the same with Indigenous scholars, you know. We kind of have to be mm -hmm. fiscally colonial. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, what would it look like to be fiscally decolonial or or just decolonial period uh, it would look like bougainville when they're like you know 
went into the mines at night and took the rubber, like rubber bits out of all the engines uh, and the tires off the trucks and then, and then made like these beer guns <laughs> out of that. And then they went through the whole mines and like shot spears at everybody until they left. And then Bougainvillea sort of was independent again. Uh, but then I guess the problem is that, um, you know, once people have tasted that civilized life and, and there's little bits of infrastructure there and it's kind of decaying away and, and they're all depending on sort of one leader who led the revolution, then that leader dies. Everything kind of goes goes to shit after that, you know? And it certainly did in Bougainville. It became like the rape capital of the world and there's murders all over the shop that uh, went really badly there for a while. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't know what it looks like in a productive way. I know it's not revolution because I always see revolution as like it's just part of the pump and dump scheme of imperialism. You know, pump and dump Mm-mm. in the marketplace, how like they really hype up a, a stock and they buy heaps of it and the price is going up and up and up because they're buying heaps and then all the idiots come in then and buy because they think it's going to go through the roof. And then, like, you know, the rich people who were pumping it, then they dump it. You know, they, they dump it all. Like, the, they sell it to one of their subsidiaries, so they still hold it. <laughs> but they sell, 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 and then the price drops, you know. So everyone else gets out and they lose the lose the farm and those rich bastards come in and they buy them all back at bargain basement prices and they just basically have a money machine like factory there just pumping and dumping stuff i feel like revolutions are part of that you know in a longer term sense revolutions are pump and dump scheme for the powerful because you're always in it with the same freaking oligarchs uh one way or another you know uh, holding all the cards at the end i mean the mines are back in bougainville and <laughs> you know that really sort of uh modernized the place i guess uh and change things it's it's all part of the pump and dump scheme so i I don't get too excited about about much activism anymore and uh i feel like i should just to be a good person but uh when i look at the overall picture i'm like ah something's needed and what it's not is like a shift in consciousness of everybody because it doesn't matter what everybody thinks most people in the world are like yeah like let People get married if they love each other, you know, LGBTQI+. Like, yeah, let them do what they need to do. You know, uh, most people in the world are, yeah, let's not let's not kill the air and the oceans. <laughs> you know, let's kind of, you know, have better communities where, you know, things are in reach, where we don't have to drive an hour for work where we can go 15 minutes to everything we need. Yeah, that sounds great. There's most people in the world, you know. But that doesn't matter at all. The consciousness shift has already happened. You know, most people feel the same way about most things. And it's not the world that we've got that most people want. But then what's happened? What does it What does it do, this shift in consciousness? Not a lot. Not a lot. Because it's, you know, a handful of billionaires pretty much got the world by the balls and um, driving it like they stole it, I guess, to mix metaphors. Balls and cars. That's my mixed metaphor. Hey. That's interesting. I didn't think about that the consciousness shift has already happened. I I do hear 
the disenchantment of activism, though. I sadly can uh, feel that with Mm. you. And yeah, I guess I wonder, what do you get excited about? What does seem like something that's knocking on the door, beckoning? I think it's just... um, For a better world. See, ironically, you know, in in the English-speaking world, which is the world, like even though it's a tiny minority of people who are speakers of English as a first language, everybody else has to learn the bastard. Everybody has to learn English and everybody has to use English if they want to do anything in business or politics or communications around the place. Yeah, I, I watch all the co-opting of language and the, the neutralizing of language and the theft of terms, the way uh, language is sullied around anything that's good and anything that's actually achieving change. The language gets turned around, as I said before, and lost. But if you think about that, it's kind of almost like this globalizing culture, this weird culture, Western uh, industrialized, educated, rich, democratic culture. It's kind of eating itself in that way eating itself in a weird way, like a, I don't know, that movie, The Human Caterpillar, only if it was in a loop, you know, it's kind of eating that, it's all falling apart. I'm kind of excited to see what what emerges next. Because, you know, an activist community uh, uh, has enjoyed a long tradition and, and you know, and, and a lot of language that was safe and stable and, and that meant something. And it was building on a lineage of, of um, thinking and action and really successful movements. Um, but that's kind of gone. And that's part of the culture, that weird culture. And I'm just interested to see what emerges next after this one finishes eating itself, uh, which is pretty close to doing. I think you got like one more U.S. election cycle left in it. <laughs> after that, nothing's going to mean anything. Uh, there's going to be no truth, no story, no unifying narrative to sort of hold all the atoms together and then everything will sort of dissolve into a quantum soup and then reform around something else. Who knows what that'll be? Uh, global fascism or, uh, I don't know, like startling diversity and a whole heap of productive interdependent um, regionalism. Who knows? Well, I like the latter. That sounds pretty great yeah yeah. well that's where coming from the other end of the beckoning i guess that's where the yearning is is pointing to people Mm. towards you know Mm -hmm. unfortunately for some people that means a compound with 14 year old wives and lots of rifles you know so it's Mm. a it's a it's a weird one Mm -hmm. lots of libertarians Mm -hmm. sort of Mm -hmm. what's a libertarian crossover with new age stuff Mm -hmm. now yeah that's um, fascinating uh, you know, new age, new age culture has collided with conspiracy culture, yeah. you know, in this quite startling way. Uh, it's no longer a horseshoe. It's just a, it's a, the cycle's complete. Yeah. Now it, the student talk, has become the master. Talk more about that because I think that's really fascinating. The new age and the conspiracy theorist coming. Yeah. I don't know. I'm just wondering if that Star Wars metaphor, Star Wars metaphor will work as an extended thing for this. I don't know. Let's explore. <laughs> so, you know, Darth Vader is uh, Anakin Skywalker. He's good. Uh, then he's evil. Then he's good again. Then he's dead. Then he's a ghost who comes back and talks to Rosario Dawson. And <laughs> um, and we're not sure where she's going to end up. I know one thing for sure, though. There, there is a force in the universe. There is magic in the universe that binds all things and, and moves all things and connects us all in startling ways. But you can't manipulate that. You can flow with it. So people who think they're doing magic and doing something amazing with their consciousness and their breath work and their psychedelics or whatever else, people who are doing practicing shamanism uh, that they learned in a workshop or off a bunch of TikTok videos, you know, this is kind of like, like, yes, the force exists, but as soon as you... Um, form a cult that's based on child abuse and, and lightsabers, uh, the, the galaxy's pretty much fucked, you know? Yeah. So I, I think everybody feels like they have a, a handle on the magic, you know? 
uh, whether it's the gift or like, you know, the body keeps the score or whatever airplane book, airport book they just finished reading. <laughs> Everybody, you know, has a spirituality where they, where they're sort of hanging these individualized, personalized uh, sort of little brands, hanging it off that and feeling like they're magical. But um, the magic isn't in them. You know, it's all around and moving and flowing and, and they got to flow with it. You, you don't become a magical being, you know, and I guess everybody felt like if they did the work and enough people did the work for personal development, that somehow that would create a massive shift and everybody all at once would uh, experience a collective leap in consciousness. This lie, this neoliberal lie of moving towards collectivism through startling individualism and navel-gazing. It's just, um, it's blown me away. And I, I feel like that took over the entire decolonial movement. I feel like it's in every every activist movement. Too many poets, uh, not enough soldiers, you know. Mm -hmm. You said something uh, just a few responses ago about language being co-opted and so much not so many so many words not having the meaning they used to and i guess i want to ask about the word woke yeah and where has that gone well it, where is it now it started off as as something that black people in the us you know used to say to each other it was like an internal memo <laughs> <laughs> that was an internal community thing. And, and then it sort of got taken up. You know what I mean? Like heaps of uh, <laughs> middle-class people uh, suddenly took it up and were brandishing it around to mean God knows what. Um, you know, it became, then it became a rallying cry for, I don't know, these indolent sort of excesses of, of people whose entire activist life was just online writing snarky tweaks and then bloody piling onto people and going, OMG, I just can't with this guy or whatever. <laughs> um, I don't know. And all the things that I know it's not OMG there. I'm showing my age uh, there. Um, but yeah, it just all went to crap. And then of course the right just gets to seize on that as a catch all phrase for everything they hate. So they can like, and, create this oh, huge basket of issues with anti-trans stuff, uh, anti-LGBTQI+, um, you know, anti-feminist, anti-bloody, you know, e everything that sort of tries to make cities work. <laughs> um, yeah, and just everything where people are just trying to survive. Um, yeah, they get to make a big catch-all. For that with one word and then suddenly the word's gone it's useless it's ruined um it doesn't mean what it meant anymore and and it has more power for has more power for for the evildoers in this world than it has for anyone else you know um we have to pivot and come up with new words but there's only so much that a trade creole like english can do you know in terms of describing the universe and um you know, it's it's certainly, I don't know, it's pretty chameleon, you know, fast-growing, changing language, but, you know, even English isn't fast enough to, um, you know, deal with the arseholes of this world. Because it seems to be mostly arseholes who invented it, you know, like like a, a series of invaders of, of, a, of a small island nation, you know, uh, who sort of ran out of soil in their, their own places. <laughs> Uh, like six different invasions ended up producing English and, and then it went out and exported it all around the world and then it grew into all kinds of different uh, dialects all around the planet. So it's a pretty chameleon language, uh, but at the same time it can't move as move as fast as um, our souls can move because uh, our souls never sleep. <laughs> there you go. That's, that's, the name. that's the name of the podcast <laughs> episode, Our Souls Never Sleep. <laughs> Yeah, I I see it now. Um, lots of clicks. Uh, well, in the libretto for Beethoven's opera 
Fidelio, as you rewrote it for a performance at the Sydney Opera House mm-hmm. conducted by Simone Young, you write, quote, your ego will not be satisfied by this. You will want people of influence to know how virtuous you are. Be aware of this flaw and choose carefully when you send truth keepers to liaise with the powerful. Send those who are used to hiding their truth and smiling to please the fragile brutes who oppress them, end quote. Mm. Ooh, that... And then, then I said, send the women. Because <laughs> mm. uh, that's, I think if I was going to write a dictionary, that would be my definition of a woman. <laughs> well, yeah. I'd someone love... who. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Keep going, yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I just yeah. want to, I just feel like this section is so potent right now and want to hear more about the ways you're witnessing and theorizing about the dynamics of power and oppression and maybe moving beyond ego and what you were exploring with this. Mm. Well, for me, it's, it's mostly about the narrative. It's all our underlying narratives are. See, when when you, you take something like work and turn it into something else, you are taking a long lineage, like many generations of, of uh, you know, civil rights activists and, and a massive body of work, huge body of work and scholarship and activism and struggle. You're taking all of that right story, all that good story, and you're, um, and you're, just, you're just destroying it. You know, you're turning it into a series of memes. Um you know, you, you see everything like right story is just disintegrating all around the planet, uh, and it it doesn't have a very fast evolutionary cycle. It's certainly not able to keep up with how fast wrong story can come out. So for me, I look at this uh, weaponized disinformation, and I look at the handful of um, you know billionaires around the planet who are funding all of these uh, think tanks and uh, PACs and and different groups who actually produce all of this uh, disinformation and who, like, uh, build the algorithms to be able to aggregate, you know, vulnerable, disgruntled, weird people online to be able to aggregate these ones together um, and, you know, to be able to pump out wrong story, new wrong story every other day. Um, or you can take wrong story from the past, like, you know, uh, the idea of Jewish blood libel, you know, where their Jewish people are drinking the blood of Christian children, uh, you know, abducting Christian children, all this sort of stuff. Uh, you can take those older stories uh, that were weaponized by the powerful in Russia against um, the Jewish population to sort of give the people, you know, a different foe to look at rather than the powerful themselves so they could save feudalism. Yeah, they can recycle and regurgitate that narrative. Um, you know, they can even take narratives from the left like uh, CRT in a critical race theory. They can they can take that story and they can... Um, they can twist it and turn it into wrong story. Say, oh, my God, my nine-year-old child should not be learning about Rosa Parks. <laughs> At school, that's like an adult theme. Yeah, they shouldn't be learning that gay people exist. And, you know, they shouldn't have to hear that the kid sitting next to them has got two mums. Um, you know, they, they can do all this stuff. A wrong story can go so fast because, like I said, it's easier to break shit than make shit. So for me, I'm exploring these narratives and the way weaponized disinformation is um, spun into these endless yarns, these recursive yarns that keep coming back on themselves and round and round in insane positive feedback loops just growing and growing. And then I look at that and I think about uh, that same action for me in my manic episodes and particularly in the last couple of years, my manias have been spiraling downwards instead of up, you know. Um, and I can just see that's the same spirit doing that, you know. And we look at that. Um, so we got uh, Willy Willies here in Australia. It's um, like uh, whirlwinds, you know, little whirlwinds. And that, uh, that's one of my totems, is that whirlwind. And so we know that it's got that bad spirit in it, you know. And it's basically this positive feedback loop. 
you know, and you've got to kick off a negative feedback loop to kill that thing and to get rid of that bad spirit. So you've got to throw a stick at it and you've got to hit it in just the right part in the whirlywind and it disrupts, disrupts the cycle and puts in a regulatory feedback loop. And within a minute or so that, um, that, that whirlywind dies. So that bad spirit can't like come through your camp or whatever. Yes, yeah, so we have that, and I guess I don't know. In a way, I'm probably breaking my own rule and trying to mess around with magic. I guess if I think about it in terms of energies like that, that's more of a metaphor for me. That's that story, you know, of spirit and how spirit works. And I see that in myself. I see that whirlwind. You know, it goes round and round. I look out and I see it in the world, and I know what I've got to do for for myself when it starts getting out of control. You know, you've got to get that regulatory feedback going, um, which used to be alcohol for me. I used to be able to like just drink a bottle of rum and then and then wake up and it'd be over, <laughs> you know. But then that just means that I'm fifty and I've got a ninety year old liver, um, and it stopped working. And yeah, it kind of went the other way. Uh, so I, I, I ruined that and I can't do that anymore. Um, I'm experiment. I'm, I'm using Seroquel at the moment. That's so I have to take that every night and it knocks me out. And so I like reset in the morning and I start from scratch again. Um, that's that, uh, that's part of the medication for bipolar. And I guess, uh, I don't know. I'm trying to do a bit of Seroquel for the world. It's not, um, <laughs> It's not useful in the long term. You can't rely on that because uh, you sort of build up a resistance to it, you know, uh, like anything else. But you know, at the core of the problem, you can't just have medication. You got to have uh, you got to have therapy. You know, you got to be able to talk through and work through all of your all of your business and all of your issues and get get things straight. You got to be able to spend time out in the land and let the land heal you as well. You know, you need all these things, not just the medication. So for me, that's story. Story is the landscape. Story is the cultural landscapes. We all live on the psychological landscapes. And um, and there must be law, capital L-O-R-E, that is just your firm foundation that's unchanging. You know, that cannot be up for grabs. That cannot be something that's subject to change and violation, you know. Yeah, we, we, we need sacred law again. We need story that's inviolable. This is what we need. I heard this bad story the other day. This is like someone from the Northern Hemisphere, and I won't say which culture because I don't want to run them down. They were telling an ancient story from their culture, uh, folklore, and it was like, uh, yes, so a man, uh, he was attacked by a viper, and uh, the viper was going to bite him and sting him to death, and then a heron came down, and the heron killed the viper and saved the man's life. Uh, so the man, he picked up a, the heron and put him in a bag and took him home to eat for his dinner. <laughs> and his wife said, uh, why are you doing that? Uh, that heron saved your life. You shouldn't be eating the heron and killing the heron. You should let the heron go. And then the wife opened the bag and let the heron go free. And the heron pecked her fucking eyes out. <laughs> and that's the end of the story. <laughs> What's the message for that story? It's like, oh, my God. What's that message? It's like, don't do anything to help anyone because, like, they'll eat you or they'll peck your eyes. <laughs> it's kind of the, I don't know, maybe it's an old curse, but it's kind of the world we're in right now. You know, you reach a hand out to a friend who's sort of been red-pilled by like Alex Jones and all this stuff online, you reach out a hand, brother, brother, yeah, I'm, I'm still your friend. I'm here for you. And then they just rip your arm off and, and chew it up and, and spit a whole heap of stuff about Putin at you and, and then dox you online. And <laughs> then suddenly there's people arriving at your house and throwing bricks through your window. You know, it's a tricky old place. It's a tricky old storyscape that we're living in. And, um, I don't know. We need we need these good yarns. We need good cautionary tales emerging. You know, good story that that grounds us in um, you know just some basic care for each other and care for our place and just a general idea of well, we don't you know 
kill each other and everything else. That's that's probably a bad thing. Yeah, really got to start at the kindergarten level with this stuff, eh? Especially if there's herons pecking your eyes out and like scorpions stinging frogs who try to help them cross the river, you know. Uh, I think there's it's somewhere in the northern hemisphere people went wrong <laughs> at some stage. Uh, and we've always had this attitude, well, we have to help them out. We have to, you know, um, you know, the, the death of the world and the, and the destruction of our land and communities is kind of our own fault because we've failed to bring these settlers into proper relation. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. I don't like the idea that people are irretrievable because that would mean that they were also disposable. That would mean that the world would be better off without them. And you know where that kind of thinking always ends up uh, in groups of people. It doesn't end well. Kind of turns people into maniacs and psychos. Uh, I wonder. Exclusionary mm. cultures. Mm. That's what power. That's what power does anyway. I mean, power and disinformation, they are for some reason so appealing or seemingly appealing. And I'm curious about that. And mm. why does and how does disinformation thrive in these times? And it also seems like it goes under the radar, even though it's so prevalent. So, yeah, just love yeah. to riff on that for a moment. Mm. Well, the, the the left is is secular, and 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 must be, you know, in, in terms of making sure that like a reason is there in the world, and making sure that you know the most powerful part of everyone's discourse and mundane life is not, you know, um, an altered state <laughs> that should be in ceremony <laughs> and nowhere else, you know. Um, you know, but the the problem with that is that's boring and everyone's scared and, uh, you know, everybody feels special and they, they, they want these altered and heightened states that come with these insane narratives. Traditionally on the left, that, that was like the New Age sort of discourses, you know, and the Age of Aquarius is coming and all this sort of stuff, which is pretty much like any, any Abrahamic cult uh, pretty much does the same thing. Um, yeah, but that, in the end, that wasn't very far from, you know, in the horseshoe, the other end of the horseshoe on the right, you know, they all had the same stories, you know, that whole idea of, uh, you know, a special chosen people, you know, this Aryan race, um, you know, that was like the driver of the, the age of discovery was all this weird new age stuff. And, you know, uh, the explorers were looking for Atlantis. You know, there's a reason it's called the Atlantic Ocean. It's because they thought Atlantis was there and they were going to find where all their Aryan people came from. They keep looking for it. Or maybe it's in the Caucasus Mountains. Oh, yeah, it's probably in the Caucasus Mountains. We'll call ourselves Caucasians now, <laughs> you know. Uh, oh, and maybe it was in India, but then the Indian people – you know, were interbreeding with inferior peoples and then they became degraded and their civilization fell apart. But luckily, there was enough pure Aryans who escaped to the West before that happened. Uh, so, yeah, so let's call it Indo-European. 
I mean, that's, you know, in linguistics and anthropology and, and history and everything else, it's all Indo-European now. But that, half of that was coming out of seances back in the day. People would have mummy unwrapping parties and bohemian orgies and and then, like, you conduct seances and, and talk to the dead and, and then write these, like, Rudolf Steiner and Madame Blavatsky all writing these horrendous, you know, volumes about, oh, yeah, you know, progress is it's, it's a spiritual thing. You know, each new lifetime you're reborn and, and you're a little bit better than before. And the same thing is for groups of people. So, you know, uh, you know, and as you progress through, your skin gets lighter uh, <laughs> and you become, you know, eventually you get reborn as the master race, these higher level beings. Um, <clears throat> just insane stuff. You wouldn't believe how much, how much history, science, you know, anthropology, linguistics, you know, cartography, all these things are built on these insane wrong stories, wrong stories of people who were longing, but they were not fucking being beckoned, Ayana. <laughs> there was no beckoning, just longing, and now the reckoning. Ah, I rhymed that for you there. Hmm. There's so much more to dive into, but I, I know you have a time limit, which is just. Yeah, um, yeah. we could probably do another 10 minutes. Okay. And then I'm like okay. jumping in a car and racing to pick up my kids. Oh, it's going to be hard to end there. Um, yeah. So yeah. Well, I, I think the beckoning and the reckoning is, is pretty, some good symmetry mm-hmm. for a yarn mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's. Um, yeah, I wonder if it's the reckoning is the good story. Mm-hmm. Or maybe that's too simplistic. I Yeah. Because it's something you'd said earlier about once people have the taste of civilization, it's I mean you didn't say that, but that's what I remembered. You know, you get the taste of civilization, it's hard to go back. Mm. Cuz the infrastructure is there. Yeah. And so Yeah. And the narrative structure. Mhm. And mm. so, yeah, we we could be beckoned to something that feels more honest. Yeah. But what the reckoning is with so much complexity and nuance, and I don't know if it's imperfection. I don't. I don't even mm. know what I think of the word perfection anymore or purity. Yeah. That seems so far. Yeah. And maybe we we never should have strived for that in the first place. Mm. Um. So. Yeah, maybe, gosh, there's so much to say, but I think I'm trying to settle on the, ma- the material realities of the world again. And yeah. I want to go back to the libretto that you rewrote. And um, it's, quote, so too beneath the pavements and monuments of civilization in the dark sites where dark money and dark ops generate unspoken and unspeakable cruelties where the souls of whistleblowers and iconoclasts are thrown to face silence and torments. There are seeds of joy and liberty and love yearning for the sun. Every nation is grown from such foundations, end quote. That's so beautiful. I mean, that's just, uh, yeah, I, I, I felt just wrecked and then, and then like the yeah. Phoenix from the ash um, rising up. And so, yeah, how might bearing witness to these dark realities might uncover an understanding that allows us to dream differently? It can. It can do that. But then again, um, I don't know one of your, um, your January 6th insurrectionists, you know, uh, currently in prison, um, might read that same thing and feel an affinity for it. And then that becomes their song too. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> they're, they're taking all this, like, you know, they're the ones who were like, yes, you know, three strikes rule, bloody lock them up, lock up all these super predators. And you know what I mean? Uh, tougher penalties, tougher sentences. They would have been politically all like that. And then all of a sudden they're in that prison system and they're like, oh my God, this is horrendous. I'm being oppressed. I'm being oppressed. Me, <laughs> you know, and now suddenly it matters, all of that. And I keep hearing them crying out and um, and all of their woe. And I think, oh, they could read that same thing and think it applied to them. And I don't know, it bloody doesn't. 
<laughs> you know what I mean? That's not good story yet. That that is a seed, I guess. That libretto, just hoping for the emergence of right story in this world, um, and just trying to contribute to that. You know, there's signal and then there's noise, and how do you know which is which? How do you know which way to go? And I think it comes back to this word beckon. I guess if you sat for a quiet moment and then you talked to some close friends, family about it, you have to think about, okay, uh, with this story I'm hearing, am I being beckoned or am I being being lured, you know? Because I think most of us will know in our gut and just from the language when we look at it, if the story will know if we're being lured towards something that uh, is working against our best interests and for the best interests of somebody uh, somebody powerful who is just looking to um, eat us alive and throw us on the scrap heap uh, as use, as the useful idiots we are. You know, that's that luring. And I think uh, that beckon that you first spoke, you know, at the start of this, I think that's a, it's, I can't get that word out of my head, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, are we trying to use the magic? Uh, are, we, are we allowing ourselves to flow with the magic and therefore rise above all the sorcery, all the curses, uh, all the wrong story, you know, all of the propaganda? Can we feel that truth in that way? And can that somehow bind us, you know, with each other in stronger, better relation? And then what does that do? <laughs> What does that do? Well, I, I guess that's the ground. That's the that's the manure that uh, for the seed of that right story. You know that our new stories can can rise out from that because mm-hmm. uh, we're not going anywhere and we're not changing anything without without good story, right story again. All our old stories are broken, mm-hmm. and the hour is late. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about how. And where does the indigenous knowledge systems feed into right story? Well, that's where you get a model, a good model, what law, capital L, O-R-E, right story looks like. Because, uh, you know, these things, we still keep those old stories and they are inviolable. And, you know, they're a conduit and, and they're an expression of, law, L-A-W, you know, proper law of how to live, you know, uh, for yourself, uh, but then for your clan, and then out further, your tribe and your region, and then out further, uh, your continent, you know, and then beyond. Um, You know, there is law for how to be, and there are protocols, and you don't have that unless you have that L-O-R-E law, and... um, yeah, the the weird people in the world and all of their minions. Um, I, I guess it's time to rediscover that one. Maybe skip the part where the scorpion stings the frog and the the heron pecks out the eyeballs of the housewife who tried to help it. And yeah, I feel like I don't know if this is the other side of the spectrum. Probably not, but technology fits somewhere in this question of good of right and wrong um Mm. it's complicated i am wondering how you seek technology as part of the story especially with such rapid and changing developments and saviorism and solutions and and control of course i mean it is just ripe with Mm. i don't even know the words right now but it's here more and more and more and more and yeah. Well, we have we have pretty effective law for that, hmm. you know, for technology. It's oh, it's so complicated, and it's you know, so, oh, with so many good things, but then it does so many bad things. You know, how do we, etc. We, we we've always had, you know, like our approach to technology is that um, no new technology can come into our life and into the world unless it's accompanied by an equally powerful social technology that can prevent that thing from ever being weaponized. 
And sometimes that means that uh, limitations, regulatory feedback loops, et cetera, I was talking about before with the whirlwind, that um, that these need to be built into the technology. Um, but more powerfully, you need that social technology and psychotechnology. You know, pretty much it comes down to that good law, good LORE law. In the end, um, you know, the stories that, you know, uh, prevent people from weaponizing these things. Um, you know, so that's slow tech. Uh, it's tech like T-E-K, traditional ecological knowledge, um, that, you know, holds the solution to that. You can never compromise your T-E-K with your T-E-C-H, uh, if you know what I mean, because one eats the other. Okay, we're going to need to have a part two because this is just too juicy and I really appreciate hey. this conversation and all that we've touched on. Lovely talking to you. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of For the Wild. The music you heard today is by Leo James, generously provided by Patience Records. For the Wild is created by Ayana Young, Erica Ekram, Julia Jackson, Jackson Kroof, Evan Tenenbaum, and Jose Alejandro Rivera.